In the mid-1980s, as a grand jury convenes to examine allegations of judicial misconduct in Cambria County, Pennsylvania, a name quietly resurfaces from the 1980 shooting of an undercover police officer. Dennis Anderson was among the seven outlaws charged and convicted in relation to the assaults at the Snack Shack in Mundy's Corner. He's serving a 10-year sentence in relation to the incident, which left two undercover officers seriously injured. State police investigators at this time are probing the affairs of Cambria County President Judge Joseph Okiki. They believe that Okiki may be involved with gamblers and prostitutes. Anderson goes a step further. He tells authorities that he was given a private audience twice with Okiki, once in the judge's office and once in the warden's office in the old county jail while he awaited sentencing earlier that decade. Okiki, Anderson says, wanted a few favors from the outlaws. First and foremost, $25,000 from each of the seven convicted in the assault. The second favor? A contract to kill Okiki's first wife, or at minimum, a 22 caliber weapon with a silencer. But was any of this true? Welcome back to Jailing the Judge. Dennis Anderson's allegations would grab headlines many years later. They would not be included in the grand jury's 1989 presentment on Judge Joseph Okiki. Former Cambria County Prosecutor Dennis McGlynn said, quote, The police were unable to corroborate the allegations because no one was present at the meetings but Okiki and Anderson. Still, current Cambria County President Judge Norman Krumenacher III found these meetings between Okiki and the convicted outlaw irregular. I mean, again, where do you go from brilliant to crazy? I mean, the janitors are here at night. There are people to come in and out of here at all hours. You know, how are you going to keep a secret like that? I mean, how, you've got uh, even, I don't know how many at that time over at the old county jail employees you have. Say you have 20 employees, okay? Now, out of, out of the blue, the warden, and the warden lived in the jail at that time, okay? Because remember... Well, you guys are too young. But the our old jail, the warden actually physically lived in the jail. Okay. The, oh yeah, take the tour. The front of the jail's their house, their residence. Okay. Well, I mean, how secret can you keep when the warden comes in at, you know, eight or nine o'clock at night and says, uh, bring me Joe Blow here and we're gonna make it and I'll bring him back in an hour. You know, you're you're a guard. I mean, you don't even have to be brilliant to sit there and think, isn't this a little strange that, you know, we have an inmate here that's, you know, almost murdered a couple state troopers and he's just going for a stroll down the street with the warden to see the judge. I mean, at nine o'clock at night. Krumenacher said the word of the judge's actions would have spread quickly in the courthouse. His behavior was getting so strange. And this is a little courthouse. I mean, you can't keep any secrets here. I mean, really. Come on now. We don't know what was said between Okiki and Anderson, but a variety of sources seem to agree on one thing. Okiki was paranoid at the time. Now, I will tell you during the trial, and this goes to his paranoia that that didn't start then. I mean, it had been coming for some time. During the trial, he had like the uh, helicopter, the parking lot cleared out here at the side and had the helicopter in here and i mean it just got to a level of security that was uh over the top 
I mean, I won't call it bizarre because state police are designed to provide high-level security, but for the nature of the charge, even though it did involve a state trooper, I mean, Trooper Sepp, who I tried that case when Trooper Sepp was killed right in front of the courthouse here, you know, we didn't, we had security beefed up because of the number of people coming here to view it, but uh, his was real bizarre. I mean, I mean, when you have the ordering the uh, state police helicopter be to be on standby right beside your office is uh. George Fatman, former editor of the Tribune Democrat, said Okiki once told him that the outlaws made an attempt on his life. Uh, there was, you know, naturally uh, an animosity between Okiki and the outlaws, and he uh, was worried and concerned about that. And for some reason, he liked to talk about how they were out to get him. So one day when we were supposed to have lunch, went to the courthouse and he invited me into his office, you know, off the chamber. And there was uh, windows behind his desk, behind his head. So uh, he said, look at those bullet holes. He said, uh, those were shots from the outlaws at, at my windows. And he said, it's so bad that before I go home at night, I check with the state police and they tell me which route I should take take to get home. His, his home was in Richland Township. So I don't know how long, how long that went on. Uh, they may have watched out for him because he was in a dangerous position uh, vis-a-vis the outlaw gang. Uh, but it, it was interesting that he called me up to, to point that out to me. Compounding the courthouse drama in the early 1980s for Okiki was the turmoil in his own personal life. He and his first wife separated and eventually divorced. The pair had seven daughters together. His second wife, the former Sylvia Duke, first met him while he was her instructor at the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown. Well, I met him because he was my um, professor at Pitt. I was working at Mercy Hospital, Johnstown, and I wanted to go back to grad school, and I needed a few courses um, that they required, some general things. So I went to Pitt, and he was was the instructor for the professor for one or two of my courses. And one day, um, I always thought um, Okiki was an Irish name. I don't know why. I'm Slovenian background, and he is, but, you know, I didn't put two and two together. So it was St. Patrick's Day, and I, he was out in the hall talking to some students, and I went up to him, and I said, oh, happy St. Patrick's Day, Judge. And he took notice of me, and he said, oh, thank you, but I'm not Irish. I'm Slovenian. I said, oh, ha, I'm Slovenian. So then, um, then we talked in the hall. And I was also accompanied by um, who I thought it was a friend from Mercy Hospital. She was Ted Baranek's secretary. He was the administrator. Her name was Cindy Nimitz. And she also talked to him at the same time. So we would be in the hall. Cindy and I would be talking, and then we would talk to him. So she was sort of the threesome in this beginning of this um, relationship. So it progressed from there. Sylvia, who now goes by her ancestral name, Anusik, remembers the judge being fearful of the outlaws. Anusik, Okiki's widow, said that the judge enlisted Tony Tregona, one of his tip staff, to even guard his house. Tony Tregona, by the way, and someone else had set up like a little headquarters on his property. I don't know how that happened, but just to watch over cars, come, it was a very long driveway, and somebody could come up the driveway and stop at one point where there was like a, an office swimming pool building, and they could have gotten out and done anything, I mean, because it was a big piece of property, and that Okiki property. So also he told me that a couple times a helicopter came and picked him up, and he also told me the story, I'm not sure, but I do have a, 
a news clipping that one of his daughter's um, roommate was murdered, and he thought it had to do with the outlaws because she had something about clothes and they switched clothes. It was Halloween. I don't know. I can find that and show it to you. That's scary. Yeah. And I didn't know if I really would believe that or not because I never talked to the daughters, but he had that clipping in the file, which meant to me there was something to it. Why would he keep that? And uh, yeah, he was concerned for his kids. He was really worried for his kids. And then at the end, um, when Judge Griffo sentenced him to jail, um, there was a story, he's really afraid of jail. And I think Griffo intended to send him where the, um, the outlaws were put. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I've heard. Though the outlaws make for an interesting anecdote in the Okiki story, they aren't the enemies who became central to his defense when the grand jury convened in the late 1980s. As the investigators and prosecutors began closing in, the judge constructed a theory to help explain his legal troubles, one involving a powerful local millionaire. Wilbur Shonick, who also went by WID, was a local entrepreneur who opened a Dick's Auto Parts in the 1930s. His chain expanded vastly over the next 50 years, opening stores in Delaware, West Virginia, and Florida. He became a self-made millionaire, and with that money, of course, came power and influence. According to a 1989 article of the Pittsburgh Press, Shonick liked to talk about using his private plane to ferry prominent politicians. One example was the late Barry Goldwater, GOP nominee for the U.S. presidency in 1964. He'd also brag about drawing hundreds of people to his Four Seasons Resort in Jennerstown, Somerset County, including, and you may have heard of him, a senator from Delaware named Joe Biden. The Okiki connection with Shawnick and Biden is recorded in yellowing notepads used by the judge's secretary to keep track of phone calls and relay messages. Okiki's widow, Anusik, has in fact held onto these records and hundreds of others related to the judge. An entry dated March 2, 1983 states that Shawnick called and asked whether Okiki was okay with Shawnick giving his personal number to Biden. We reached out to Joe Biden's campaign. We did not get a response. Shawnick died in 2001 at the age of 88. According to Anusik, Okiki kept an uneasy alliance with Shawnick, born out of fear. This connection put the judge, at times, among people in high places. He knew so many people. He knew Joe Biden. He knew Arlen Specter. Judge Krumenacher acknowledged Shawnick's quiet role in politics. Well, he knew Wid Shawnick. I mean, you know, I knew Wid Shawnick. A lot of us knew. You know, Wid was always involved in politics and things like that. I mean, he was one of those behind-the-scenes politician-type people. He would support people, you know. Uh, but whether it was Wid Shawnick or maybe some other people he, that got kind of scooped up in that, his conspiracy theories, uh, there was more than one, I believe. Uh, I, I would just attribute it to that his, his mental deterioration. And according to Fatman, Shawnick operated independently of both the Democratic and Republican parties. One thing that Okiki and Shawnick may have had in common was that they both ran against the political grain. Shawnick, uh, Shawnick was always at outs with the uh, Republican Party in Camarillo County, which was headed by the Gleason family. And uh, as I said earlier, I'm not sure what party affiliation Okiki did or did not have, but he ran against the grain also. So they might have, they might have, you know, had that in common. There's little doubt that the Shawnick name had clout in Cambria County, and indeed across the Commonwealth. His son-in-law was Lieutenant Governor Mark Single, and later court testimony revealed that several of Okiki's own staffers were referred to the judge by Shawnick. But why would Shawnick want to make trouble for the judge? Here's an explanation from Okiki to Channel 8 News. Mr. Shawnick is involved in the political manipulation of county government. Mr. Shawnick 
and a brother involved in the auto parts business with him by the name of Rudolph Bootshonik. Rudolph Bootshonik, uh, on his own accord, made a gift to stock of Dick's Automotive to St. Francis College in late 1986. In March of 1987, Wid Shawnee told me that he would cut off my head and stick it up my rear end for coercing his brother into giving money to a Catholic college. From that day on, the investigation of Joe Kiki began. The various people that he had recommended for hiring to, in county government suddenly turned on me. Now, these include Anthony Tregona, George Coburn, Betty Crisco, and Brenda Nasser, and of course, Dick Green. Those are the major culprits who testified against me. Shawnick, again to Channel 8, responded to the chop my head off and stick it up my rear comment. No, I didn't say that. But let me say this. As big as his head was at the time, you couldn't have counted up an elephant. A key connection between Shawnick and Okiki was attorney Richard Green, a former Republican senator in Pennsylvania's 35th district. Green was Shawnick's longtime personal attorney, and he provided key testimony to state police, alleging that Okiki had tried to get him to kick back money that he awarded to one of Green's clients during a settlement. Green was interviewed by Rick Kirkham of Inside Edition in 1990. Here's an exchange between Kirkham and Green regarding Shawnick's role in the Okiki investigation. Has Mr. Shawnick led you to believe that he was out to get the judge? Oh, he hates him. <laughs> There's no doubt about it, he hates him. Is Mr. Shawnick? W.D. Shonick behind an out-to-get-the-judge campaign. Is that what brought Judge Okiki down? Pull it out of thin air and saying, hey, he's not guilty because Wid Shonick started the investigation that produced the evidence. It's the evidence that counts, the facts that produced the counts. You know who started it. Okiki's legal problems were well publicized before the end of 1988. In October of that year, just four months after he was installed as president and judge of the county, he was suspended of his duties. This set the stage for a wild trial that Cambria County residents wouldn't soon forget. Under the radar, however, was another development that would send quiet chakra waves through the county courthouse. Earlier in 1988, perhaps even prior to the state police investigation into his own affairs, Okiki received a three-page memo concerning major malfeasance in the county's domestic relations office. His widow, Anusik, retained a copy of this record. The most significant claim in this memo is that Cambria County commissioners paid thousands of dollars to an office computer company called Echo for a feasibility study that didn't exist. It may be tempting to dismiss these anonymous allegations as old courthouse gossip, but Okiki took them seriously enough to rehire former domestic relations office employee Brian Sukenik in August of 88 to begin a serious inquiry. As later written correspondences would prove, both Okiki and Sukenik contacted state police and federal authorities regarding these allegations shortly after Okiki was sworn in as president and judge. Letters from state police, the Commonwealth's Judicial Inquiry and Review Board, the Administrative Office of Pennsylvania Courts, and the U.S. Department of Justice acknowledge receipt of these complaints. Most damning? The financial irregularities between the Echo Company and Cambria County's Domestic Relations Office would in fact be verified by an independent audit in 1991. So what did this mean, and who was implicated? We'll explore the questions about the Domestic Relations Office down the road, but in our next episode, we focus on the Okiki trial, one that included brothel allegations, a judge forced to recuse himself, and other complaints of a biased jury pool. We explain, with the help of an Okiki associate, a local defense attorney, and the man who actually prosecuted this case in the next edition of Jailing the Judge. Next time on Jailing the Judge. The only thing you can do is to try to capture conversation. Okay? We were unsuccessful. 
you know, um, it's peculiar that the police would rely on that as being the linchpin to start a, a grand jury. 30 years ago, you say Judge Okiki, everyone in Cambria County could say who Judge Okiki was. Okiki, what a pity, you might be a swine. They say you broke the law, so you might be doing time. Jailing the Judge is hosted and written by me, Bruce Seeley. Reporting conducted by me and Eric Keita. Produced by Keita and Michelle Ganassi. The show is scored by Billy O'Shea with the theme music, The Party After the Show, provided by the crew of The Half Moon. Graphic design by Rick Kasmer. Special thanks to Brian Whipke and the team at Gannett. This podcast is a product of Our Town and the Daily American. For online extras, visit dailyamerican.com.